find a seat, we will get started. And I'm hoping you received a set of notes on the way in, or you brought the notes that you received last week. But if you need some, over here, Manny's got some. And then the guys have some here as well, Dave's got, and Larry does. And you'll turn to page four, please, in those notes, and we will pick up where we left off last week. Before we do, a few announcements. One is that we have begun our midweek semester, Wednesday nights, 7 o'clock. We have ministries for all ages. So if you have children, we have ministries for all ages of children and teens and nursery and toddler. And then we have three adult classes going on. If you've never taken our foundational class, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, then that's the one that you should take. This will be our third week of that class. So it's still early enough that if you haven't been able to be with us for the first two, you can still jump in. And I would encourage you to do that. And the first two are recorded and are on our website. So you could catch up that way. This Saturday is our next Newcomer's Brunch. And that's at our house, and a few times a year we, we have a brunch, and it is for anybody who's never been to one of our brunches. So the newcomers portion is a little misleading because you don't have to be new to the church. In fact, uh, we have had people come to the brunches that have been at the church for years, and it's just scheduling didn't work out for prior brunches uh, for them to come, and then they could finally make one. So if that's the case for you, we would love to have you, but we need to know. We need to know this week. The brunch itself is Saturday morning. 10 o'clock at our house. It's on our website, so if you click on the banner on the website, then you can register for that. You don't need to bring anything but yourself, and as I say, we would uh, really love to, to have you. So uh, do that even now so you don't forget, or make a note even now for later this afternoon so you don't forget to register for this Saturday's brunch. <clears throat> Two weeks from yesterday is our annual Hayride and Bonfire. And the Hayride and Bonfire is at the home of Jeff and Edie Mize. They have a great place for that. Those of you that have been part of it know that. So it's always a great time. We, though, uh, have, have and need food for that. Uh, we uh, eat and enjoy each other's uh, company and then have the bonfire and we have the Hayride going. Um, so for the food, I need to emphasize that because Pastor Larry made the announcements in first hour. And he said, you don't need to sign up for that. You don't need to sign up for this event. But then he said, but we need food. So, see, the problem with Pastor Larry is that Pastor Larry's too nice. He's just way, like he's the nicest guy I've ever met. He's the nicest guy, I mean, hands down, the nicest guy I've ever met. But there are times where you just have to get in people's grill and say, look, if you're coming to the hayride, you've got to bring food. If you show up at the hayride without food, we will turn you away. I mean, Pastor Larry won't turn you away, but I'll turn you away. And, and we need lots of food because lots of people are going to be there. And he tells me that as of right now, we have signed up one crock pot of Sloppy Joes. So if it turns out that 200 of us show up and we all gather around that one crock pot of Sloppy Joes, we're going to get pictures of that. So we, we have it on the, web, on the website where you put what items you can bring. 
they're categorized for the different items we need. Sloppy Joe's is one of those. So I just say two things. Everybody, if you're planning to come, please do come. Bring some food. Let us know what food you're bringing. Go to the website and do that. So that's the first thing, bring some food. And then the second thing is everybody, everybody wants to bring, what does everybody want to bring? Uh, hamburger buns? Hamburger buns? All right. Now we need Sloppy Joe buns. But the buns are no good if there's no Sloppy Joe. That's the thing, okay? The really important thing is the Sloppy Joe. In fact, if we didn't get enough buns, we could still make do with the Sloppy Joe stuff. I could at least. So uh, consider bringing a crock pot of Sloppy Joes if, if you can. If you can't, then bring what you can, and we will gratefully receive it. All right? So that's for two weeks from yesterday. Last announcement is at the end of November... So it's uh, just uh, eight weeks away is our next baptism, and that is on November the 27th. And if you have never been baptized, and what that means is that you've trusted Christ as Savior, and after having done that as a believer, then to signify that you've done that, to publicly profess that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are immersed in water to symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's what biblically baptism is. You, if, you, if you say, you know, when I was a, was a child, I was baptized. When I was an infant, I was baptized. And that is, you're not getting re-baptized. So we're not asking you, and more important, the Bible's not requiring you to get re-baptized. Because what you did the first time is actually not baptism. Immersion is baptism. The word actually means that. And every baptism that occurred in the New Testament was, in fact, that. So it's a misnomer when people sometimes say, so do I have to be rebaptized?" I always say to them, no, you're not actually being rebaptized. This would be a first baptism. But it is necessary for all followers of Jesus. And if you have questions about that, I would love to discuss that with you. The best way to get that process started is we have just a simple one-page application. If you stop at our welcome desk that's out in the foyer, ask for a baptism application, then fill that out, bring it back with you uh, next week or turn it in you know, today. And they'll get it to me, I'll get with you, and we'll go from there. This is the second of eight sessions in our series, Worry-Free Decision-Making. And we got through the top portion of page four last week. So we're going to pick up there. If you were not able to be here last week for the first session, like all of our sermons and lessons, those are recorded and are available on our website so that you can, you can listen to those. We covered, as you see at the top of page four, the sovereign will of God. And the last sentence there before outline point B says, every event is within God's sovereign will. Every event is within God's sovereign will. We'll come back to that in a bit. But for now, let me ask you about this scenario. I'm going to give you a scenario uh, that happened to me, and then think about how you would answer it, how you would think about it especially in light of every event is within God's sovereign will. So some years ago, I was at a funeral luncheon, and I was seated by some folks that I, I didn't know prior. And one of the ladies that was at the uh, table, she was a, a Christian lady, and somehow we, we got on the subject of, of her family, and she was describing her young adult daughter. Uh, and the fact that she said her young adult daughter uh, had a child out of wedlock, that she has a granddaughter, and her daughter, 
who gave birth to the granddaughter is, is not married. And so she, she said that. And then I, I think, I don't know what's going on in her mind, of course, but I think she thought about the fact that I'm sitting next to a pastor and I just said that my daughter had a child out of wedlock and I bet he thinks really bad about her and about me. And none of that's true, by the way, but that's what she, that's what she I think, was thinking. Because immediately she started to talk about that. And what does that mean? And she said, you know, I've, I've, I've had to think about that. And uh, I determined that, here's what she said, if God didn't want it to happen, it wouldn't have. So it must have been what God wanted. So you're sitting there, and that's the scenario. Someone has had a child out of wedlock, and someone says to you, if God didn't want it to happen, it wouldn't have. God must have wanted it to happen. What would you say? Especially in light of, just before outline point B there again, every event is within God's sovereign will. Well, in order to think about that, to think about the answer to a question, if something happened, that means God wanted it. If something happened, that means God wanted it. In order to get our minds around that, we're going to need to go a little bit further in the notes here. Last week, we looked at God's sovereign will in some detail and concluded that every event is within it. But now you see point B, the moral will of God. The moral will of God. So there's God's sovereign will. Now let's think about a bit what we're calling God's moral will. God's moral will is that which he desires in accordance with his character and being. Gary Friesen, who wrote the book that is on the very first page of your notes, we have about six or eight books recommended there, and Friesen's book, I think, is the one I recommend most, Decision-Making and the Will of God. And he puts it this way, the moral will of God, and we have it in our resource center, if you want to get a copy. The moral will of God is the expression, in behavioral terms, of the character of God. The imperatives, that would be the commands of God's moral will, touch every aspect and moment of life. And that is so because they prescribe the believer's goal and attitudes as well as his actions. So you have the character of God, what God is like. And then you have the moral will of God being the expression of what God's like. God has expressed, God has made known what he is like, and he wants to see that expressed in his image bearers. So we are supposed to behave like the character of God. We are supposed to express, display in our attitudes and our actions the character of God, what God's like. So that's what Friesen says the, the moral will of, of God is, this expression in, beha in behavioral terms, in our attitudes and in what we do, the character of God. And so the commands of God's moral will touch on everything since they include not just what we do, but our attitudes in doing it. Now here are some passages that speak of God's moral will. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now let's, let's stop and look at those two. We looked at the sovereign will of God last week. Is 1 Timothy 2 and 2 Peter 3, are those referring to the sovereign will of God? Remember, the sovereign will of God is every event that God has planned and allowed to come to pass. So are those the sovereign will of God? Here's one way to think of that. If those are the sovereign will of God, then how... If 1 Timothy 2 is the sovereign will of God, then how many people would be saved? God wants all people to be saved. If it's the sovereign will of God, how many people would be saved then? Oh, it's God's decree. It's God's plan that all people be that, That's what that would mean. But biblically, are all people saved? Do all people come to a knowledge of the truth? The answer is no. Therefore, that cannot be referring to the sovereign, decreed plan of God. If it were, everybody would come, be saved, and everybody would come to a knowledge of truth. Likewise, 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So if God has sovereignly planned and decreed that no one will perish, then how many people would perish? None. But do any people perish? Yes. Therefore, this can't be referring to the sovereign decreed plan of God. And that's why, then, we have a second category of the will of God. There's the sovereign will of God, that which He has decreed in His plan, His eternal plan. And then there is the moral will of God that expresses what God is like, His character, as that top paragraph says. So here, this next verse, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, this is one now that is directly addressed to us in terms of our behavior. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And then we've got dot, dot, dot there, the ellipses, ellipsis. But if you uh, were to look at that verse, right after the word sanctified, it's got a colon, and then it tells you how... In that particular instance, you'll be sanctified. To avoid, it says this, avoid sexual immorality. It is God's will that you be sanctified. Avoid sexual immorality. Sanctified means, the word means set apart, holy. So it's God's will that we be in our character like His character. Set apart from sinful character, our own sinful character and that of those around us. Sanctified. One of the ways that that happens is we avoid sexual immorality. So it's God's will that you should be set apart, holy. Part of what that means is avoiding sexual immorality. All right. Again, is that God's sovereign will? If it were God's sovereign decreed will that, that every person should be sanctified, then how many people would be sanctified? Everybody would, right? But this is an expression of God's moral will. This is an expression of what God's character is. This is an expression of, in our attitudes and our actions, what aligns with what God is like. And it's God's character, and therefore God's desire, that you should be like Him. 
set apart from sin, different, and that includes avoiding sexual immorality. So this is how, then, you can summarize God's moral will. It can be summarized this way. God's moral will is what pleases him. It has been revealed. That is, it's been made known. And then thirdly, it can be missed and therefore has to be pursued. And because of all of that, a summary is a given event may or may not be within God's moral will. Now, I want you to notice the contrast between those three bullet points and the three we have at the top. Up at the top, we say God's sovereign will can be summarized this way. It's what God has chosen to allow. It is known, hidden. Before it happens, the only person who knows it is God who decreed it. Known only to God. And because it's God's decree, sovereign decree, it cannot be missed and therefore does not need to be pursued. You don't have to pursue the sovereign decreed plan of God because it's going to happen. And God uses every event and every person in His universe in order to move it to happening. That's God's sovereign will. But then in contrast to that, His moral will, those three bullet points, those are what pleases God, what God wants, because they conform to His character. It's also what has been made known. It's been revealed. It's not secret. It's not hidden. He's told you about it. But you can obey it or not. You can follow it or not. So it can be missed, and therefore it does, unlike the sovereign will of God, which cannot be missed, it has to be pursued. So when we talk in a class like this about worry-free decision-making, then which of those are we talking about? Am I making decisions that move the sovereign plan of God? That change the sovereign plan of God? I don't even know the sovereign plan of God unless He reveals it, right? Until after it happens. And so when we talk about worry-free decision-making, our decision-making is not in the realm of the sovereign will of God, it's in the realm of the moral will of God. It's making our choices so that they align with the character and purposes of God, as made known, as revealed, as disclosed in Scripture. So all that happens is God's will in one sense. So if I say that sentence now, given what we've gone through this last week and now so far this week, if I say all that happens is God's will, which of those two aspects of God's will am I talking about? All that happens is God's will. Which one is that? Thank you. Yay. You guys made my Lord's Day. God's sovereign will. But if I say all that happens is what God wants, would that be true? That all that happens is what God wants? That would be false, wouldn't it? So now, let's go back to the lady who said, my daughter had uh, our grand, my granddaughter out of wedlock, but it wouldn't have happened if God didn't want it to happen. In terms of God's sovereign will, God decreed that to happen. It's in God's plan. And that actually is something that it's okay to invoke 
after the fact to say, thank God that he's on the throne. Thank God that even when, not if, I mess things up. <laughs> and, and, you know, put this young lady that I never met aside. Put your name in there. Put my name in there. When, not if, I sin. When, not if, I mess things up. When, not if, I make foolish choices. Thanks be to God, he is a sovereign God on the throne. And he takes my stuff in inscrutable ways. What's inscrutable mean? I don't know. I just like to say it. I read it once. No, it just means you can't get your mind around it, right? And he takes all of that in, in his own inscrutable ways, in ways that we can't understand, and he is using it for what he's accomplishing in his world. That's God's sovereign will. And I thank God for that. And after the fact of every event, we should say to ourselves, thank God for that. And even if it involves something that you did, and you did wrong, or I did, and I did wrong, confess what you did wrong, but then thank the Lord that He, can, he makes good out of our foolishness. So, in, in one sense, it's, yes, this baby, this life that's made in the image of God, that God loves more than we could ever love and more than that new mother could ever love. And we're thankful. We're thankful for the gift of life. We're thankful that God's involved in this child's life and we pray that this child will come to a knowledge of the truth and come to know the Lord and follow, you know, all of that, right? It's within the sovereign will of God and we can rely on that and, and trust in that. But if someone then asks the question, is that is is having children out of wedlock what God wants. That's not an expression of God's character. In fact, it violates God's revealed will. The Bible says things about that. In case you have any questions in our overly sexualized society, culture, um, the Bible teaches that there is only one outlet for sexual expression, and that's marriage between a man and a woman. Marriage between a man and a woman. 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul there talks about marriage, divorce, remarriage. And at the very beginning of that discussion, uh, he talks about those who are single. And he says, it's better for you to marry than to burn with passion. So if you desire, if you're not, if God hasn't given you the ability to not marry, which he only gives... He doesn't give to a lot of people. And you have natural, God-given sexual desire. The outlet for that is marriage, so you'll, you'll need to get married. And the reason for that is there's one outlet for sexual expression that's within God's will, and that is within marriage between one man and one woman. And that's God's moral will. And so we know that because he has said so. So to this grandmother... In one sense, she's right. It's yes and no, isn't it? You know, if God didn't want it, it wouldn't have happened. Well, God has allowed it to happen in his sovereign plan, for sure. Take comfort in that. Praise God for that. But we also don't want to say, if that grandmother, or if I were talking to that young lady, and she says, well, therefore, is it okay that I had sex outside of marriage? The answer is no, it's not okay. 
it violates God's revealed moral will. And we need to be able to, in our minds then, when we talk about the will of God, think about which aspect of the will of God we're talking about. Are we talking about God's only known to Him, hidden, decreed will of God? Or are we talking about His revealed, His made known will of God, His moral will, the expression of His character as given to us in Scripture? And in decision-making, we're talking exclusively about His moral will. About making decisions that are in keeping with His character and His purposes for us. And then within that, as we make those decisions... We find great, should find great comfort in the truth of His sovereign will. That, okay, Lord, I'm going to do my best to make these decisions. But I also know I'm going to mess them up. I already messed up a bunch. <laughs> and so I'm thankful that you took all of that into account when you made me. That you took all of that into account when you placed me in the circumstances that I'm in. You knew what choices that I would make and you have, and you have put those into your sovereign plan so that your sovereign plan comes out exactly as you decreed. Bottom of page four then. Note, the key distinction between God's sovereign and moral will is revelation. Revelation just means to make known. So, with his moral will, you know what it is. With his sovereign will, you don't know until after it happens. God's sovereign will is revealed after the fact, while God's moral will, moral will is revealed in Scripture. Now, you see the footnote there? God has revealed some aspects of His sovereign will in Scripture via predictive prophecy. His plan includes all events that come to pass, most of which, most of which are obviously not revealed in Scripture. So was it in God's... And we need to ask ourselves these kind of questions. Was it in God's sovereign will for there to be a hurricane in Florida this past week? The, the answer is yes. See, whenever you say, was something within God's sovereign will a day later, the answer is always yes. I'll help you out there, okay? <laughs> now, what's God doing with that? God is going to do something with that to advance His good purposes in His world. And that world that he's advancing those purposes in is a fallen world, a fallen world that's affected now by environmental disasters because it's fallen. Because of our sin, because of humanity's sin, there's a curse upon the environment. And that's why there are such things as earthquakes and, and tornadoes and hurricanes and those kinds of things. Now, just let me stay on that for just a moment. And we'll get back to the notes. So does that mean that the people in Florida had sinned in some particular way that they deserved to have a hurricane come their way? Did they deserve to have a hurricane come their way any more than we deserve to have a tornado come our way? Right? The answer is no. And Jesus talks about this in a passage that no one except me and R.C. Sproul ever talk about. And R.C. Sproul's with the Lord now. So it's just me now, okay, talking about this. Luke chapter 13. And in Luke chapter 13, some of Jesus' detractors come to him and, and they say, so, um, what about 
those towers that fell and killed a bunch of people recently. And, you know, they come to Jesus with that and they're, you, hot shot, say you're the son of God. What happened when these towers fell and killed a bunch of people? Now, this tower incident and, is, and this disaster is not something recorded in the Bible. We don't know what it is. But they did. It was some kind of thing known to them. And they bring it to Jesus and they say, so what do you, where's your God, where, where are you guys with that? Son of God, where was your father when all that was happening? And what a lot of people would do, they would, would start to stutter and they would stammer. And here's what Jesus says. Do you think those people were worse sinners than you are? I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Well, okay. Glad I asked. And then Jesus takes it a step further. He goes on. He says, what about those people who are worshiping and you've got Pilate mixing their blood with their sacrifices? So apparently there's an incident where Pilate goes and he kills people while they're worshiping. And these, the detractors are not the ones who brought that up. Jesus did. Jesus says, and what about that? And then he says the exact same thing. Do you think that those people are worse sinners than you? I tell you, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. So what Jesus is saying is this, that all of humanity is guilty before God. And that all of these maladies, all of these tragedies, all of these things happen because we live in a fallen world and we live in a fallen world because of us. And therefore, any, any bad things that happen to me, any bad things that happen to sinful human beings, all that would be all of us, then none of us are getting worse than we deserve. And to put it in accurate theological terms biblically, anything that we get better than hell is better than we deserve. That's what the Bible teaches. So... No, the hurricane was, yes, it's God's sovereign will. It's not God's moral will because it's a result of sin. It happens because we're in a, in a fallen world. But he nevertheless uses it like he uses everything, everything else. Bottom then of page four. Here is a... I think, very helpful verse on this distinction between revelation for God's sovereign will and His moral will. Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. That would be His sovereign plan. It's only known after the fact. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. So as we move forward now in this series and we talk about decision-making and the will of God, we're talking about making our decisions in line with the moral, revealed, known will of God given in Scripture. And if you don't get those right, you'll mess things up. Because you'll look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and you'll say, it's the will of God that everybody be saved. It's the sovereign will of God that everybody be saved. And that would be wrong. 
Or you'll see people sin and you'll say, like this grandmother was trying to do, will say, well, it was okay that 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 happened because it's covered in God's sovereign will. Yes, it's covered in God's sovereign will. No, it's not okay that it happened. Top of page five. Does God have three wills? Many believe that there is a third aspect to God's will in addition to his sovereign and moral wills, namely his individual will. This individual will is said to be something that we must find. So we hear people talk about finding God's will for my life. Some even believe that God's individual will has these three levels, good, acceptable, and perfect, based on Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Since God has a sovereign will that has already decreed what the future will hold for each of us, there is no doubt that there is a particular life's work that each of us will pursue. The difficulty for many is in trying to determine what that particular will is. Many tears have been spilled trying to ascertain God's will for one's life, and the result is not always good. Lesson 5, we're going to study the passages normally cited to teach an individual will must be found. For now, just note the context of Romans 12 too. That the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God all refer to one will, not three. So these are not three uh, different wills of God. So that you're looking for the perfect one, but there's an acceptable one, and then there's a, a good one. And if you miss the perfect one, you just got acceptable or good, maybe that's the person you married. And so lots of people have thought that. Believing that there are these three wills of God, and they prayed about trying to find the right person to marry, then they get married and they're, you know, five, ten years into it, and you have your typical difficulties that go on when sinners say, I do. And so now, you know, one or both of the spouses is wondering, you know, maybe I didn't get that right. Maybe I wasn't in the perfect will of God. Maybe I just got acceptable. Maybe I just got good. And I dated somebody who I'm pretty sure would have been in the perfect category. And then you start Facebooking, and then you start, okay. It's one will that is all three of those things. It is good, it is acceptable, and it is perfect. And it's not God's sovereign will, it's His moral will. So, let's look then at God's plan and our decisions. Failure to properly distinguish between sovereign and moral can cause us to mistake His desires as well as use improper means to discover His will. Following are common approaches to pursuing God's will. When I do premarital counseling, these are the, the four that I go over with those that I do the counseling with. We have a lesson on decision-making. And one of the decisions that they're making is to get married, obviously. But then they're going to be making all kinds of other decisions in their, in their life to come. And I go over these with them. That... It's very common for people to do feeling-based, outcome-based, and opportunity-based decision-making. Feeling-based is, as the name suggests, based on how I feel, my emotions. I felt led of the Lord. So, you make a decision to do something because you felt something. It felt like the right thing to do. Often this is an emotional decision. 
And when we add the Lord to it, when we say, I felt led of the Lord, well, then who can argue with that, right? That forecloses any discussion about the thing because the Lord led this. But the truth is the Lord may or may not have led in your emotions and how you felt about it. True? Can't you feel good about something and it end up being the wrong thing? But this is, a, this is a common one. I felt led of the Lord. And this leading of the Lord idea in Lesson 5, as I said, we go to the verses that talk about, that are commonly used for these approaches. This is one. But this idea of being led by the Lord is used in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And it says those that are uh, led by the Spirit are the children of God. Those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. So if you're a child of God, you are indeed led by the Spirit of God. The Bible teaches that. Now the question is, how? How am I led by the Spirit of God? And what does the result of that leading look like? And in Romans chapter 8, you know what it looks like? It looks like a changed life. It looks like things like the fruit of the Spirit. So the leading of the Spirit is not something that you discern in, in Romans chapter 8, the only passage in the Bible where this phrase is used, being led by the Spirit. It's not being used in an emotional kind of way that you have to discern these emotions, are they a God thing or not? But many, many, many Christians have been taught to approach decisions that way. Another passage that's used in that vein is the peace of God, Philippians chapter 4, that transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when you're settled on a matter, you have peace about it. You, you feel good about it. As we'll see, Philippians 4 is not talking about that. So feeling-based decision-making is not the way to go. Second, outcome-based decision-making. This one is, you know, I'll, I'll make the best decision I can, but after the fact, I'll know if it was a good decision based on how it turned out, the outcome. And if it turned out favorably, then it was a good decision. And if it turned out unfavorably, then it was a bad decision. But the problem with that is, remember the sovereign will of God. <laughs> and the sovereign will of God, thanks be to God, overrules a lot of our stupid stuff. So I can make, you can make a foolish decision and it turns out right. And I'm thankful for that. But the fact that it turns out right doesn't change that it was a foolish decision to begin with. So the outcome doesn't determine the approach that the decision, the decision took and whether or not it was the proper approach. The Lord worked it out doesn't mean that I made the right decision. And then there's opportunity-based decision-making. The Lord opened the door. Opportunity-based is when people do things like put a fleece out before the Lord. Do you know what I'm talking about? So God tells in Judges chapter 6, in the first part of your Bible, Gideon. Gideon, I want you to go to war 
and I want you to go to war against 30,000 soldiers with 300 guys. And Gideon says, huh, <laughs> I tell you what, God, why don't we do this? Why don't I take a fleece from a sheep and put it out, and if it's wet in the morning, then that means we'll go your way. If it's dry, we'll go my way, which is away <laughs> from the enemy. And, and so that happens. It actually happens, and it turns out that it's the way God... And so God played along. And a lot of people then have taken that over the years to say, well, that's a good way to discern the will of God. Put a fleece out before God, a metaphorical fleece. So God, I'm praying about this decision. Should I buy this car? If you want me to buy this car then have the salesperson call me back in the next five minutes. And then the phone rings. And it's not the salesperson, it's not that salesperson, it's a different one that you talked to earlier. So now you're in a world of hurt. Because your signals are getting crossed with God here a little bit. So then you might say, all right, let's redo this. Let's redo the fleece and it'll be something else. If God, if you want me to do this, then have somebody knock at the door when the, in the next hour. Just anybody knocks at the door. I'll know that's you letting me know this is what you want me to do. And then, you know, the UPS person drops the package, beats on your door, takes off like they do, right? And you've got the will of God. That's the approach that a lot of people, a lot of people take. That I've got this opportunity, and the opportunity has been confirmed by some circumstance that I perceive to be from God. Sometimes that I set up in order to know that it's from God. All of those are wrong. Here's the biblical approach to decision-making. It's purpose-based decision-making. I make this decision in order to advance God's revealed, in His Word, purpose, which is His mission. God has left me here and He's left you here to carry out his work in his world. And he's given all kinds of areas that we're involved in in that work, all kinds of decisions for us to make wisely before him as we pursue that work. But all of those decisions are to be made with that purpose foremost. And whether or not this decision advances that, that mission. So we're going to describe that one in detail now going forward. So think about this yourself. Which of these approaches to decision-making best describes you? I don't want to show of hands or any of that, but I do want you to just think about that. Each of the first three all have in common that they can be manufactured or misunderstood. They can be counterfeited by Satan or manipulated by our own efforts. Only purpose-based or mission-based decision-making can give us clear direction for our lives. Last two pages in a minute and a half. This is sort of a, an addendum to this lesson. That's why I can do it very quickly and you can read it. But as we talk about God's plan, His sovereign will, He's decreed everything that comes to pass, we can take great comfort in that because we know we are going to mess things up for sure. But as we talk about God's decreed will, how does sin fit into that? 
That's what this is about. Has God decreed that we sin? And if God has decreed that we sin, then, then whose fault is sin? And the reason I have this here is because this is something that people ask, understandably, when you talk about the sovereign will of God. And with the first line, top of page 6, that we live in a victimization culture and we want to be able to blame someone else, even if that someone else is God, for what we do, then this is an important thing for us to, for us to get our minds around. So I encourage you to, to read that. But let me just say, just declaratively uh, and very forthrightly, middle of page 6, James chapter 1, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Now notice, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So James chapter 1 is answering the question very directly. God is not the one who causes anybody to sin. What causes anyone who sins to do so is their own sinful desire, their own sin nature, for which we are responsible. Now, with that, God uses all of that in that inscrutable, sovereign, decreed will of His to work out His plan. So I encourage you to read that over. I'll say a few more things about it at the beginning of next week. You don't have to bring then these notes back with you. We'll give you a fresh set for lesson number two next week. We're going to pray and be dismissed, and I'm just going to say one thing which is, it has been really hot for me up here, warm. Has anybody else been warm? Lots of people have been warm. Okay, I'm glad to know that one because I've been very warm. I've been sweating. And about a third of you have been nodding off as I've been talking. <laughs> and I'm a victim <laughs> of the heat in this room. It's not my fault it's the heat. So next week it'll be a little bit cooler in here, um, I think. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the blessings of this day. Thank you for allowing us to gather before you, with your people, and then to look at these important matters that are related to your will that you are working out in your world in ways, Lord, that we cannot get our limited minds around. But we take the greatest comfort in knowing that all things that happen, everything that happens, that there's not a maverick molecule in your universe, that there is nothing that's happening, happening randomly that is outside of your plan, and you are moving it all toward your appointed end. And so we thank you for that, because, Lord, we are part of that. We are part of it with our decisions. We're part of it with our foolishness. We're part of it with our sin. We're part of it with our obedience. We're part of it with our praise of you and our desire to, to serve you. And we thank you for all of that and that you work it all together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So thank you for your sovereign will. Thank you for revealing what you are like in your word and what you desire to see happen in your world through your people. Help us to have a clear under picture of that now in the weeks ahead so that we will make decisions that are in keeping with that and therefore are pleasing to you and obedient to you. We ask you to help us to contemplate that this, this week even, the mission to which you have called us and how we align our lives for that, to further that. 
Bring us back together next Lord's Day, we ask. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.